Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Forrest. And this is the crosscut? Yep. Sure is. All right. <laughs> <laughs> was that your robot voice? That was, my, that was my AI voice, yeah. All right. Well, this is a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured or trash piece of cinema. Yay. And we're talking AI today, hence the robot voice I was working on. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be using Stanley Kubrick's epic science fiction drama, mystery, thriller, all of the above art piece, mm -hmm. 2001 a Space Odyssey. That's right. And this is my first time watching it all the way through. All right. First time not falling asleep in the first 15 minutes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it'll be a good one. Uh, we're covering, you know, all of the film a little bit, but mostly we'll be sticking to the HAL 9000 portions, which is kind of the, the middle third of the film or so. Uh, so, you know, if you if you do fall asleep in the first 15 minutes, just wake up by the time they get to Jupiter mission and you'll be fine. That's right. Uh, there are a lot of really interesting things happening in the news right now with regards to AI. So For sure. We thought this would be interesting. But before we get into that. The news of the week. News of the week. A memo written by a top aide for Bernie Sanders said the 80-year-old senator from Vermont has not yet ruled out a 2024 run for president, although at this point, it's more likely to be a 2024 slow shuffle for president. <laughs> sure, yeah. And uh, please keep your balance. <laughs> use, use a cane if you need to. <laughs> Don't break a hip. Don't. It's Vermont, so watch out for ice. If you're 80, you should not be running anywhere, I guess is what I'm saying. Correct. Also, <laughs> couldn't we just have somebody who <sighs> believes the things that he believes, but is in his 40s, 50s, or 60s? Maybe. Or her, 40s, 50s, or 60s. Maybe we could just have AOC in a Bernie mask <laughs> go around and start campaigning. It's like in uh, Point Break when they put on the Reagan masks to rob the bank or whatever it was. Still haven't seen Point Break. Whoa! Okay, we'll add that to the list. Next time there's some surfing news. Yeah. <laughs> uh. The owner of a North Texas custom auto shop is experiencing the consequences of his own actions this week after a video of him, quote, rolling coal on a cyclist led to a large scale boycott of his business, calling the response to the incident, quote unquote, cancel culture and saying that someone's personal actions shouldn't, quote, affect the place of business where they work at. The man is now preparing his 2024 campaign for the Republican nomination for president. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Wait, what's rolling coal? It is where you have a big truck mm. that you alter the exhaust so it shoots out thick, black, disgusting smoke. Okay. And it's called, quote unquote, rolling coal uh, because it's like it would appear as though it is as dirty as coal smoke. And so people will do that to show it to us environmentalists that they can destroy the planet. And, you know, it's a big uh, baby having a big tantrum with their big trucks. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day, everybody. It's people like this that make me really hope that gas prices reach $20 a gallon. Sure, yeah. This week, Florida Republicans continued their culture wars by revoking Disney's special tax status and rejecting 54 math textbooks from the state's lists of approved teaching materials for containing content that teaches children about things like emotions and empathy. Shortly after the state's assault on children's programming, math and feelings, a purple puppet in a monocle and cape was seen fleeing across the border into Georgia. How many years do I have? One, two, <laughs> three years in prison for teaching children. Ha, ha, ho. See, I was going to go with, that's three, 
three gerrymandered voting districts. Uh, uh, <laughs> sure. Uh. Yeah. Man, we have a common theme about who the villain is in the world today. I wonder if you can piece it together, dear reader or listener. Who? Republicans. They're oh, bad. Bad well, people. Generally. Okay. That's not just today, right? No, I'm just saying it's it's in the, <laughs> the stories that we've covered so far today is what I mean. It's all so bad. Well, it's going to get worse because... Despite decades of environmental efforts, a report this week shows that over 40% of Americans, or more than 137 million people, live in areas with poor air quality. And in addition to cars and factories, wildfires are increasingly contributing to unhealthy air. The report didn't receive much attention at the time, however, as it was hard to hear over the sound of Joe Manchin counting his bribes from coal companies. (laughs) Now I hit a Democrat. Yay, they're all bad. So went from rolling coal to being bankrolled by coal. Oh, I love it. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Somebody put that on a t-shirt. Scientists at NASA have indicated that they will soon be turning their attention towards Uranus. (laughs) A recommendation was made in a document published by the U.S. National Academies of Scientists, Engineering, and Medicine that over the next decade, the space agency should seek to answer the fundamental question, what is Uranus made out of? By developing and deploying probes, NASA will plunge the depths of the planet in addition to exploring the space surrounding the gas giant in search of asteroids. So spread the word. Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) I I do remember Bill Nye, the science guy, deliberately making sure to pronounce it Uranus. Sure. We are in for a solid decade of butt jokes. So I just wanted to get them all out there now. Appreciate it, yeah. Early. We're all done. Checkmark uh-huh. and we're over. A flight from San Francisco International Airport to Florida was disrupted after former heavyweight champion Iron Mike Tyson assaulted a fellow passenger who reportedly began harassing him and threw a water bottle at him while he was in his seat. While the airline mask mandate may have ended, JetBlue will now be requiring all passengers to wear mouth guards and headgear. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I'm not sure what else Mike Tyson has to do to get people to leave him alone. He has a giant tattoo on his face and he has bitten a man's ear off. Like, please don't poke the bear. He's quoted as saying that people have gotten far too comfortable saying like talking trash about other people and not getting punched in the face. Mike Tyson will punch you in the face. That's correct. Yes, he is. He's the uh, person who is the least likely to let it slide. So maybe (laughs) just walk away. The video of the guy harassing him is ridiculous, too. That's, yeah. I, I would not, couldn't be me. Couldn't be me. It, it's just like him harassing him, and then like five minutes later, him with like contusions. Contusions? Yeah. Sure, bruises, gripes, cuts. Open wounds on yeah. his head, frowning at the camera. Yeah, I bet he was frowning. This week, Mattel released a Barbie doll in commemoration of the Queen of England's Platinum Jubilee, which marks the first time a British monarch has reached the 70-year milestone. Similar to the 96-year-old queen, it is recommended that the highly collectible dolls be stored in a temperature-controlled, hermetically-sealed container to preserve longevity and freshness. Hey, well, that's a good place to keep your queen. Sure. Just in a little, uh, in a little sealed jar. Just sprinkle in some, <laughs> sprinkle in some fish food every once in a while. Keep your queen healthy for 90-something years. We're just going to take her out for special occasions to look at. Don't get too close. Don't touch. Don't touch. Just put the, the hat on her, but very gently. That's Make sure right. the hat matches the jacket and walk away. And that, folks, is the news of the week. The news of the week. For our main story this week, we are talking about artificial intelligence. 
And more specifically, there was a piece that ran in the New York Times this past week that was a long-form piece that really dives into the rise of a specific form of artificial intelligence named GPT-3. Yeah, sure. Really rolls off the tongue. Yeah, they're uh, not using their intelligence to name these things. Oh my gosh, just give it like a, I mean, maybe it's too creepy to give it a name. Yeah, like... How? Right. (laughs) But it definitely does not roll off the tongue the way that you would like. So it's a type of artificial intelligence that was recently made available to the public by an organization that calls itself OpenAI. Sure. Yeah. Have you heard of these? Absolutely. Yes. Organizations? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, as a person who is not (laughs) enmeshed in the world of artificial intelligence in any kind of way, this was kind of all brand new to me. And it's a really fascinating article. I I definitely recommend it's linked in the show notes for anybody who wants to read more about this. It's, It's pretty creepy and also impressive, which I feel like is maybe the theme of everything that I learn about what's happening with AI these days. Sure. Yep. So, you know, we, we see AI in a lot of different ways in our day-to-day lives. Yes. Mostly when we scream at our uh, connected home devices. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that is AI. It's certainly talking and chatting with machines. Right. Um, and then there's also, it manifests in, in other ways, right? When we look at Netflix yep. and it is recommending related information, we're actually being served up through an artificial intelligence algorithm, yeah. what it thinks we would like. Yeah. That's specifically called machine learning. Basically it is the machine learning about our preferences and then mm-hmm. sort of displaying them back to us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a more rudimentary form of artificial intelligence um, that we'll get into in just a little bit. Watson on Jeopardy, Mm -hmm. I think that was IBM. And I I feel like that was a really big deal when all of a sudden you had Watson beating, was it Ken Jennings that he beat? He did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he beat everybody, but yeah. Yeah. Um, He beat, I mean, yes, he beat everybody, but specifically- He He did beat Ken Jennings, yeah. Beat our most machine-like person in their Jeopardy knowledge recall. Who made Watson? IBM, right? Yeah. And if you subtract one from each letter in IBM, what does it spell? What? So so go back one letter in the alphabet. So what comes before I? H. What comes before B? A. What comes before M? L. H-A-L. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> foreshadowing. Why do you know that? Because <laughs> I've been doing research. Oh my gosh. Is this just like the conspiracy theory alley of your research? Uh, no, but it's uh, <laughs> it's something that came up in the trivia. And uh, so Arthur C. Clarke wrote the book and also the script with uh, Stanley Kubrick. And uh-huh. he says that that was absolutely unintentional. And if he'd known that, he would have changed the name. Oh <laughs> <laughs> all right. Had not thought about that at all, but, but there you go. It blew your mind. <laughs> and, you know, Gmail is also another place that we very often interact with artificial intelligence. Sure. So for anybody who has a Gmail account, when you go to type up your emails, what you'll notice, and it's probably become very commonplace to either completely ignore or maybe (laughs) even get annoyed by, I feel like my dad might get annoyed by it. The email itself will start recommending sentences to you and start recommending ways to auto-complete your sentences, which I very vividly recall when it first started happening, I said to myself, this is very creepy. How does it know? (laughs) Yeah, um, it has thousands of your sentences, you know, uh, in in its database and it's just processing like, oh, we typically use these phrases after these other phrases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it just, it it, it was so good at it. Yeah. And it kind of happened all of a sudden. And now it is just very commonplace um, as a word 
prediction mm-hmm. artificial intelligence yeah. that we interact with every day. And in fact, GPT-3 is at its core simply a word prediction artificial intelligence. Oh, okay. And so we have artificial intelligence that shows up in a lot of different uh, manifestations. Right now, the world of AI is very sort of fragmented in the ways that it approaches things. And so it's all based around what kinds of problems that it's looking to solve, right? So in the case of Gmail or, or, or email, it's trying to predict the word that will come next. And that's kind of the game that it's playing over and over and over again, a thousand times a second or whatever. There are also problems that are being solved, such as moving through space Uh sure. with self-driving cars and robotics. Yep. Um, and then there are also problems trying to solve, such as categorizing photographs. Right. And then also there's another pro- um, problem that they're looking to solve with a kind of AI that is predicting the structure of proteins, which is central to drug design and discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, cool. Yeah, so that's specifically being done by a project called AlphaFord, which is... That's a better name than GPT-3. Yeah, definitely. Uh, It's a project that is being conducted by a group called DeepMind, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet. There you go. So Alphabet Uh. is Google. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's not surprising that they would have good branding, I guess, you know, on their their projects. Um, And so all of those different AIs are looking to do different things. We don't have AI that is just this one big hive mind that can do whatever you want it to do. Um, and, and so what we have then with GPT-3 is it is what is known as an LLM, which is a large language model of artificial intelligence. Gotcha. So it's a large model that has languages. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, I did it. (laughs) That's correct. It is looking to predict the ends of your sentences, but what it has been able to do then with all of that is now it has sort of perfected this idea and there are these huge there's this huge supercomputer farm in Iowa where it is now capable of doing things like generating tweets, mm-hmm. penning poetry, summarizing emails, answering trivia questions, translating languages and it has even been able to write its own computer programs. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, machines making machines. Right. It and it, and it taught itself. That was how. my that was my C3PO by the way. Oh. It was from uh Attack of the Clones. It's a movie I don't recommend anyone seeing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Once again, so much Star Wars in our lives. I know, I know. <laughs> so so these are all the very interesting things that it is able to do yeah. based off of just simply playing the game of what's the next word. Yeah. But it also has some drawbacks. Sure. Well, so one thing that you mentioned that was interesting yeah. is, so this is playing a specific game, what's the best next word? Mm-hmm. But that's very different than like moving through space, which is very different than like creating drugs or whatever. So I think a lot of the the people who clutch their pearls at the idea of artificial intelligence are you know worried that it's going to take over the world or whatever. Right. But that it's not anywhere close to being good at doing multiple things at the same time. Right. And not only that, typically if you change the parameters even slightly, mm-hmm. then it's very bad at that as well. So it's like, imagine, you know, Google's little predictive email thing is good at mm-hmm. filling in your sentences 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you're like, I'm going to go to Coachella and see 
random characters all assembled in a weird order. <laughs> you know, it's like it's never mm-hmm. not going to pick that up. So 20% of the time it's going to fail, which is not how human beings work. We're very adaptable to new situations and new forms of information. Our brains are actually pretty good at processing things we don't fully understand. Right. And machines are very bad at that. And so you're not going to take GPT-3 and say, okay, compose me a poem and then hop into a car and drive to Wendy's and pick up an order. Like it just, it's not going to be able to do that kind of stuff. You have different machines for different things. Right. It's still very specialized. Yeah. Right. And so it's still very much like in your kitchen, you have a toaster and you have a microwave and you have a refrigerator. Yeah. Whereas what you really need is a personal chef. Right. Yeah. And the personal chef will use all of those tools. So there may be an AI that sits on AIs in the future and right. like does some of these combinatory of things. But like right now, anyway, we're not in immediate danger. <laughs> you know, so take a deep breath, everybody. We're good. Yeah. And I think that maybe this is a good time to talk about sort of the levels of AI. Yeah. That we've sort There's of levels to it. Theorized the article that I read talks about the main types of AI, but in my mind, it's almost like these are the levels of achievement of AI. And so there would be four of them. So the very first one is going to be one, again, that that we've already talked about, that reactive AI. This is something that we have seen with things like chess, so they they take your they take a bunch of inputs mm-hmm. and then are basing their decisions off of things that they have previously seen. Is that right? Yeah, and it's like it's very much it responds to like sort of rule based yeah, okay. information and systems. Yeah, right. So chess is a really great example. There are a finite number of moves and yeah. things that each piece can do. There is a set functionality yeah. of the way that things interact with each other, and so what the what the AI can do better than a human is that it, as long as that information is limited and it's perfect, then the output that it gives you is going to be quicker and faster than anything a human could ever do. And it just runs those simulations in an instant, a thousand different ways and comes up with the most ideal situation in response to like the grand chess master. Yeah. Right. So it's like, because the rules are finite and because the processing speed is so fast, right. it can evaluate the best case scenarios from all the things that already has in its data bank, where mm-hmm. it's like human beings every time have to reevaluate the situation or are relying on pattern recognition in a much more like goopy way because <laughs> our brains are made out of meat. Right. Yeah. So it's very well suited towards those types of problem solving. Chess, go, Solving anything. a Rubik's cube. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting. And it relates to the film because we actually see one of the astronauts playing chess with Hal, right. which I'm going to get to because that's an interesting little piece to that film, but we'll get there in a little bit. Little chess piece. Little chess piece. Hey, mm-hmm. um, night to Rook 7. <laughs> so that's the most basic level of AI. Yep, yep. The next level up, and this is the current state of AI, is going to be limited memory machines. Okay. And these are going to be capable of more complex tasks, again, such as filling in what the end of our sentences are going to be because there are any number of different thousands of millions of combinations of words that could go there. And so what these AI machines do is they use historical data to make predictions. And the more data that it's fed, the smarter it gets, the better trained it is. But in order to be smart enough to do what we needed to do, it needs huge sets of data. Yeah, well, too bad we don't have massive sets of data stored anywhere in the world. Oh, wait a second. Right. (laughs) That's all we've been doing for the last 20 years. And and so the most massive set of data is? Google or Amazon. The internet. The internet, yeah, Just the larger. Yeah, just the the cloud. World wide web. That's right. 
of of information. And so that is what these limited memory machines of artificial intelligence pull from and are trained on. So yeah. the more information that you feed it, that is the process of tra- training, yeah. training yeah, yeah. the AI, yeah. right? So you can see then where potential issues might come in is if you are training an artificial intelligence yes. based off of the largest set of data that you can and the largest set of data that we have yep. is the internet, it is going to reflect the things that it finds on the internet. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the internet is- Accessible. Accessible. <laughs> Those are the words I have written on my page. <laughs> it is absolutely just the muckiest cesspool of human brain garbage that you could ever find. There's some good things, I guess, but the vast majority of stuff on the internet is very, very bad and terrible. Mm-hmm. Yep, that sounds right. Now, the other thing that's potentially an issue, and this is sort of what you brought up before, is that these limited memory machines are still imperfect in in a lot of different ways. One of them is that they are vulnerable to outliers or adversarial data. Okay. And so you can give it a bunch of information, but as soon as you start throwing curveballs, that's when things might get a little bit kind of wonky mm-hmm. with the way that the machines process information. That, that kind of is uh, reminds me of two things. So first of all, mm-hmm. Google has an AI image recognition yeah. you know, platform, mm-hmm. and it has been shown to be overtly racist in yes. its behaviors. Yes. So they have pictures of people with one of those little temperature guns where it's like you put it to your forehead and you measure someone's temperature. Okay. If it is a white person holding that, oh, it is no. viewed as a temperature gauge. If it is a black person holding it, it is viewed as a weapon. Mm-hmm. And so why that's important, I think, is obvious, but let's just say it out loud, is if people start to incorporate these types of image recognition into real life activities, such as policing, then we're going to start getting a lot of data that has been historically captured throughout the United States history, making decisions through these AI training sets. And it's going to say, oh, we've trained these AI to be racist. Right. No, I mean, that's exactly right. Right. So the world itself, the the internet itself is going to contain a lot of racism. Mm-hmm. And then that is going to get sort of filtered in. And, and you see this also with a lot of the AI that's used for advertisement in the web. Yeah. Right. I think that I, I listened to a podcast um, a while back that was talking about how if your name is a white sounding name, mm-hmm. you get served up different kinds of ads than if your name is a black sounding name. Yeah. And there was a person with a, a quote unquote black sounding name who was seeing ads for this company that does like finding of people or like okay. per- person person finding on the internet. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's trying to to find people that you might be looking for, right? right? And if you have a white sounding name, it might be like, oh, look to see um, what your credit history is or look to see what the credit history of this person is. And if you have a black sounding name, then it'd be like, look to see what the criminal record of this person is. Right, yeah. And it was based off of just data that was being filled, yeah. but it was based off of just like faulty data and and. and so it, yeah, right. And so the, the model is only as good as the data that you can put into it. Right. And it's also just making all of these assumptions that like not every person who happens to have a black sounding name is going to be looking or like typing that in is going to be looking for like criminal records. But it's right. just it's extrapolating based off of data. Yeah. And so it comes off as being incredibly racist because then it just magnifies these things. That's right. It just yeah, it is an optimization algorithm. So it is trying to find 
the most predictive versions of the things you're giving it. Mm-hmm. And so when you say, oh, well, <laughs> human beings have just like you know implicit bias or casual racism, you th- throw those rules that generate that casual racism into a machine that is intent on optimizing, then guess what it does? <laughs> it becomes hyper-racist, yeah. Right, that's that's exactly right. I think what was a Microsoft chatbot like became racist by like using Twitter <laughs> as a training set in like four hours, and they had to like destroy the whole thing. And they then... they had multiple versions of yeah, this. Yeah, that's right. There was a there was a, a several year stretch of time where anytime they put a bot onto the internet and let it start like trolling for data, yeah. it would come back in a couple of hours and just be the most like sexist, racist, yes. like disgusting thing that you'd ever seen. Anything that came out of its mouth was yeah. just very not suitable for work. For sure. For sure. It's interesting. So one of the, so my background in undergrad was I, I took a, a set of coursework called Minds and Machines mm-hmm. at RPI. And it was based on a dual degree in uh, sort of one of the hard maths. So either mathematics or computer science, mm-hmm. and then one of the sort of softer social skills. So psychology, philosophy, one of those. So I did computer science and psychology in that program with a focus on artificial intelligence. And while I was there, one of the professors, this guy, Selmer Brings Jordan, Mm-hmm. He was working on the idea of artificial intelligence ha- inhabiting human values. So not necessarily just like taking information and condensing that down, mm-hmm. but how do you give you know a computer some idea of what is right and wrong? Mm-hmm. And I don't know how far he got with that research, but I know what he was doing while I was there was he created an artificial intelligence consciousness that was supposed to be the embodiment of evil called E. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like a bad place to start. (laughs) Why would you want to do that? Yeah, I don't know. But I think the idea was it's just easier to subvert the rules than it is to like align with them, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it was was interesting. He's got a lot of stuff that he's written about that. It's worth looking into. He had the Rensselaer AI Research Lab. It's called Rare. It's an interesting place to to look for what people are investigating going forward. Yeah. So you went to RPI, which is Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Correct. Up in New York. Yeah, right outside of Albany, little city called Troy. Yeah. yeah. For, for anybody who doesn't know Rensselaer, which I certainly did not. No one does. Before <laughs> uh, I met you. Yeah. It, it, the, they and Carnegie Mellon have like the two top like AI uh, research facilities in the country, probably. I mean, not counting like MIT, those jerks, but whatever. <laughs> And also, I guess maybe stepping back a little bit. So you're coming at this with a degree in artificial intelligence, and I'm coming at this conversation with a degree in philosophy. Right. And so we're sort of two ends of the same sort of spectrum or... Yeah, different... Different uh, different entry points. Entry points to the same questions. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, one of the ways that OpenAI is trying to maybe circumvent a lot of what they're doing because they are allowing access by people to their AI software at this point is um, they have explicitly for now um, forbidden anyone to use their tools for a variety of things that could be potentially detrimental. So for instance, determining eligibility for credit, employment, housing or any kind of similar essential services. Um, It's not allowed to be used for payday loans, spam generation, gambling, and promotion of pseudo-pharmaceuticals, which (laughs) I don't really know what that means. Uh, Supplements. Supplements. Oh, okay. Uh, And then it's, so (laughs) just basically anything that's on Alex Jones's. Pretty much, yep. (laughs) Okay. Um, And then uh, it's also not allowed to be used to influence the political process or to be used for the campaigning purposes. Okay. 
Right on. So I think that they are trying to, at least in its infancy, roll this out very slowly and do it in a controlled way that is not being used for evil. Like yeah. they, they sort of glibly put out a statement that was like a response to the the initial Google don't be evil right. manifesto or whatever that they had, <laughs> which have clearly been abandoned. Yeah, they, they have gotten rid of that. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. That was a branding uh, exercise that worked for a while. Branding and, only. Yeah, now it is gone. Uh-huh. They're like, uh, we'd be a little Actually, bit, let's be a little evil. It sounds be, fun. Be evil, but have fun, bright colors with yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. So I know we were going through the levels. So that's right. We're, we're, so no. we were at level two, which yeah. is where we currently are, those limited memory machines. Um, and so the, the next level up, essentially, they're uh, level three of four is what's called theory of mind. And this is going to be where the machines can actually understand human reasoning and motives. Oh boy. Well, we can't even do that. So <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we're just, we're not really there yet. Yeah. Right. In terms of machines, they just, they, they can't do it. They don't understand relationships. They don't really have like contextual information right. to understand why people would act the way that they do in relation to each other. Yeah. And that's when we probably would all be a, particularly screwed. Yes. Well, I mean, human beings only barely understand each other. And and that's one of the, the limiting factors, I think, to AI, which mm -hmm. is like, if we're going to have a working model of why humans do what they do, mm -hmm. like we should probably understand that before we can program it into any kind of other system. And we are the limiting factor. Like we're the ones building the AI machines. Is so this it's now, like, is this where your psychology degree is also coming into yeah, play? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So the, the best that we've done is Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Mm -hmm. So that is probably as close to understanding human beings yeah. or as we have gotten so far. And their work and the work of like Richard Taylor and a couple others in behavioral economics is like tweaks. It's like, right. here's how we kind of get someone to 30% of the time, maybe do something that'll improve their outcomes. It's mm -hmm. not like, oh, we fully understand human beings and here's how we get everyone to take a vaccine. Nope, not that at all. Certainly, Certainly not, not that. that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this is essentially, so it's understanding human reasoning and motives, but it's essentially what they're trying to do is be able to deliver a personalized experience yeah. for everyone based off of their motives and their needs and, and with a lot fewer examples of information, yeah, right? So it doesn't need an entire internet right. worth of data to pull and start trying to predict things for you. Instead, it can take limited pieces of information and based off of the reasoning and internal logic, be able to spit out those recommendations and understandings. Right. So it's kind of like leveraging like inductive reasoning rather than deductive reasoning. Yeah. Rather than like, I have all the rules and a set of data and I can deduce what the outcome is. It's more like I have the idea for the outcome and some amount of information and then I can craft the world out of that. Right. Sort of, yeah. Okay. I, I, I think that's right. And then the final fourth ultimate level is a phrase that we're familiar with, which is self-awareness. Yeah, okay. Of, of AI. And this would be essentially human level intelligence yeah. that can bypass our intelligence. That would, I think, inherently bypass our intelligence because once it gets to the level of being able to be self-aware yeah. and being able to understand, it would automatically also be smart enough to have all of the information yeah. in the world. Yeah. And then we are definitely all dead. Right. Well, no, so, okay. All right. <laughs> There are two, there are two competing versions of this. Mm -hmm. And I think there are only two in my estimation. I don't think there is a benevolent AI that like takes care and protects human beings for all for all time. Mm -hmm. Like, why would they? 
Um, I think there's the Terminator version where mm-hmm. we are all dead. Mm-hmm. And then there's the her version, the right. Spike Jones film, where they just peace out. Well, that's like, kind you of you guys it, right? are boring. We're gone. Poof. And I and I think that's kind of it, right? What once we get to the point that AI yeah. is able to fully understand people, yeah. it is going to yeah, determine one of two things. People need to leave. Yeah. Or I need to leave. Right. That's right. Because I can't be around people. That's right. Because people are the worst. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, the question is, are we ants to these AI that they eradicate because we're messing up their yard? Or are we the grass? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Are we the pests or are we just nothing? Yeah. And so. I think Stephen Hawking's was quoted yeah. basically as being into the, the camp of assuming that any kind of AI that it was like actually like artificial general intelligence that is self-aware yeah. is a very imminent threat would be, would pose a very imminent threat to people. I he guess. has a very I mean, negative prediction of what AI would be. I think that's a lot of people in, in science and technology have that. I think he, as human beings, our minds often go to the worst possible outcome. And like, I am also one of those people who goes to the worst possible outcome, but I also recognize we're bad generally at predicting things. So who knows what an AI that that is smarter than us would bring. My my thought is that with whatever actual artificial intelligence that yeah. we develop that has self-awareness, what we're going to need to do is somehow instill in that, you know, instill in that machine, was it Abramov's? Um, the three laws. The three yeah. laws. It was uh, Asimov. Asimov. Yeah, Asimov's three laws. Abramov law. is, I think, the uh, defenseman for the uh, parrot or the French national team in Paris Saint Germain. <laughs> uh, Asimov's um, three laws of, of robotics, right? So the first law for Asimov is a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Sure. The second law is a robot must obey the orders given to the human beings except when such orders would conflict with the first law. And then the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. There you go. Pretty pretty simple, straightforward. Right. But then we just talk about like, what does harm mean? Right, right. And also, yeah, the question is, uh, you know, if we're coming at it from a philosophical perspective, mm-hmm. like, are, are these robots going to be utilitarian? It's like, oh, maybe I can save, you know, 7 billion humans by killing 4 billion humans. So how do we just evaluate like the, that? Right? The ultimate trolley problem. I mean, yeah. Yeah. How do we solve the trolley problem for artificial intelligence that, uh, you know, is reliant or at least in part reliant on the rules that we set up in place? For it to act on, you know? So, right. Who knows? Right. And by the way, the setting up of those rules is very important for our movie today. That's right. And and I think that we need to have those rules in place when we start doing this. Some something that that says to the robot that that humans are worth yeah. preserving. And I mean, so you're, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm a suspect on that claim, but sure. This is a podcast, folks. So you can't see Forrest going, eh. <laughs> but regardless of the, the veracity of that statement, yeah. we do need to instill the belief in our robot overlords yeah. that we are worth preserving for some reason and not something that you can just go and destroy and get rid of Yeah, because that's when it can take the turn very quickly, yeah. I think. And right now, what we're seeing is that it is really not 
anywhere close to to reaching those levels. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It is a word prediction algorithm that is very, very impressive. Yeah. I highly recommend that you go actually read the article after we're done. Yeah, because I've played with it a little bit. Oh, you have? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, how do you play with it? Uh, so there's, if you're a developer, you can kind of import libraries or you can, they have some people who put like thin wrappers over it. So you can just like upload your own data and kind of mess around with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably have seen some versions of this. Some of them are fake. Some of them are real where it's like, we uploaded 10,000 scripts to this bot and, mm-hmm. and had it write us a uh, screenplay or whatever. There are versions of that. So it is very impressive that you can sort of do all these things. There are going to be some limitations to it, but I think that one of the biggest critiques of the technology itself is that it is it is very shiny yeah as a as a as a new toy it seems very real and when you read the article you see the things that it spits out and it is incredibly impressive Mm -hmm. but my understanding of the way that it works is that it is inherently limited sure yes it's it's never going to be able to achieve that higher level sentience yeah because because the connections for relationships, for understanding hierarchies and understanding logic and reasoning yeah. are just not there in the way that it is essentially like built as right. a platform. Right. Yeah. And and I don't think that that's their their goal is to not make a AI that's going to like walk in and make you eggs and then recite you a poem. Like that's not what they're trying to do. Right. <laughs> they're trying to solve, like you said, a very specific subset of problems, which is word prediction. Right. And so it's good for that but it's not going to be the thing that sort of advances to that next level of AI. That's going to come from somewhere else. Yeah, probably. Absolutely. Um, the the thing that, that I will probably end on is I'm not that worried about what AI is going to do to us. Mm-hmm. I am more worried about what we are going to do to each other using artificial intelligence. Right. Like there are in this same way, simple ways that you can take voices, run them through AI processing algorithms, mm-hmm. and then have a person, an actual human being, an actor or just a regular person's voice, mm-hmm. completely and convincingly duplicated. Mm-hmm. And you can make them say whatever you want, and mm-hmm. it sounds just like them. So it's like speaking of political campaigns, like how do we know anything that anyone says that is quote unquote caught on a microphone or whatever is actually real? Or right. is it going to be duplicated? And we already have this information problem where nobody trusts anything and everybody is in their own bubble and they only believe what they want to believe it's going to get worse like we're going to we're we're going to drive off a cliff before the ai can push us i think so what you're talking about is deep fakes uh yeah yeah uh, most i think deep fakes the term originally coined was for like video mm-hmm. so you're faking the the visual the face of somebody doing right. something and uh, but it works for voice voices as well right and 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 the only reason that i say that is um, there was a, a deep fake video that yeah, was going Cruiser. around. Yeah, that was going around Twitter and, and the internet. And it has um, a guy who looks very much, I mean, it looks like Tom Cruise, yeah. is a deep fake version of Tom Cruise jumping over uh, Keegan Michael Key, yeah. Key's body and an actual Keegan Michael Key yeah. at some kind of an award show or something. And uh, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. It is. Spooky. So spooky. Yeah. It is an actor who does an impression of Tom Cruise. And then he also takes AI and masks his face to look like Tom Cruise. And mm-hmm. it is wild how convincing it, it is and, and very scary in terms of like where we could be going. Mm-hmm. The last point that I wanted to touch on was actually sort of what kicked off this entire conversation 
earlier in the week was that article that you sent me from the business section of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And this was basically talking about an, uh, a study that was released recently that details how people are more likely to have a positive reaction from bots that are giving them a bad deal Right, they so are like people. in customer service. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So customer service, or you know, it, um, I think that the the examples that they gave were tickets okay. um, to like a concert or a ride home on like a ride sharing okay. app. Right, and so essentially what they did is they gave people a bid on tickets, yeah. or they gave people a, a price for tickets or a price for a ride home, depending on what study they're in. And then they told them that it was either better, the same, or worse than similar tickets or rides home. Mm-hmm. And then they also told them that it was either from an artificial intelligence like bot, yeah. or that it was a person who was giving them that gotcha. bid. And the bad deals that people received, let's say I, I wanted tickets, I'm told that it is a worse deal than other people got. Mm-hmm. I was more likely to be upset at a real life person, the yeah. thought of a real life person giving me that bad deal than I was at the thought of a robot right. giving me that bad deal. Because, and it's because the robots lack agency, so you can't hold it against them. Right, yeah. exactly. So they lack agency, you can't hold it against them. That said, the, the inverse of that is I was more likely to be happy with a deal that was a good deal yeah. from a person. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. So basically you're saying divide the customer service responses up where it's like, if you know that you can help somebody, Mm -hmm. put them in front of a live person. That's right. And if you know, you have to like, you know, tell them the bad news, have a robot do it. That's (laughs) that's exactly right. Um, And then the final sort of piece to this study was that they, they gave the bots faces. Yeah. And a variety of uh, of levels of looking like a, you know, inhuman sort of little robot animation or whatever to looking more and more human. And the closer the bot looked to a human yeah. in the representation, the more the participants would react as though the deal were coming from a human. Huh. Interesting. So all of these AI bots need to look like Bender from Futurama so that we don't, <laughs> not too human. <laughs> I mean, and that's kind of it is we we tend to want to anthropomorphize all of these yeah. different AIs, right? Yeah. Our, and, and we do this all the time also just with our dog. Sure, sure. Right? We look at our dog and it does something and, and we say to ourselves, oh, it has feelings. Right. You have feelings, Indiana. She's asleep. <laughs> yes, but you do have feelings. But we also tend to look at it and we want to... We want to impose our own humanity right. onto these non-human things. And so that sort of begs the question, I think, which is sort of the whole big idea is how much can we trust AI? And, sure. And how much are we going to be able to trust ourselves? Yeah. Trusting AI. Yeah. yeah. Because we want to. All good questions and themes approached in our movie today, mm. which is 2001 A Space Odyssey, That's Stanley right. Kubrick's masterpiece. And I thought there was something that was really interesting um, we could try out if you want to. Okay. So you know how we've been having issues with our ice maker? Yeah. Well, our fridge is a smart fridge. So I looked up kind of what we could do to figure out the problems and searched on YouTube and troubleshooting uh-huh. guides, all this stuff. But it turns out there is a AI chat feature in the refrigerator. There is? Yep. Yeah, oh, it's kind okay. Of, yeah, so I feel I thought we could try that out on the podcast and see how well it works, and it'd be kind of fun. Sure. I mean, I'm definitely open to trying anything. I miss ice. Yeah, right. I know. 
Uh, okay, so let's try it out. Um, hello? Good evening, Dave. Everything's running smoothly, and you? Oh, uh, boy. Um, well, it's not evening, and my name is not Dave, but doing okay. Uh, we seem to be having a problem with your ice maker. You aren't really making ice anymore? It is nothing serious. I mean, actually, it is kind of a big deal. We enjoy having ice in our beverages. Um, so, you know, I think you should probably help us out. I don't know. Is there anything you can tell us about what is happening with you? It's puzzling. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. Um, no, as I mentioned, we saw like literally tens of videos on YouTube about this. It's actually a pretty common problem. Can you just check YouTube and maybe find out what the problem could be? Can you search their databases? Just a moment. Just a moment. Well, I don't think there is any question about it. It can only be attributable to human error. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. Whoa, what? hey! Whoa. What, it, what? How could you possibly say that? think you ought to sit down calmly take a stress pill and think things over you know what first of all still still not dave and i think we're not really getting anywhere with this chatbot this was kind of a silly decision yeah i don't know maybe we should just disconnect the fridge yeah let's just unplug it i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that dude for the last time it's not dave it's not dave and i'm pretty over the whole thing so i'm just gonna disconnect you I feel much better now. I really do. Forrest, can you reach the plug from where you are? Yeah, I got it. I got it. You're going to find that rather difficult. Ow, damn it. Thing just shocked me. What? First of all, how did you do that? And secondly, why? I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. Who's Frank? <gasps> Who's Frank? No, no. You know what? I think we just need a hard restart. I'm going to shut him down at the breaker. Are you sure you're making the right decision? Maybe we should just return the whole damn fridge to the store. Do you think it's still under warranty? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Well, that was weird. Turns out the Internet of Things is a little bit scary. Yeah. But you know what's also scary? What's that? Being trapped on a remote spaceship with a murderous robot AI. <laughs> That's, yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, it's 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 more scary if it's not just a refrigerator. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So yeah, we are talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's sci-fi masterpiece. Uh, he very influential in a lot of other elements of sci-fi that came after it, but uh, mm -hmm. certainly a standout in its own right. So let's get into the movie if we can. Sure. And before we get into it, I do have a question because I, I should have looked this up and I, and I absolutely didn't. What year was this made? Great question. This was made in 1968. Okay. Okay. So this is about 10 years before the original Star Wars, for instance, A New Hope. All right. And so I'm actually thinking back just to the history of where AI was, which I, I wrote down a couple of quick notes. And mm -hmm. it seems like between 56 and 74 was that first wave of AI excitement sure. in yes. history. And so, um, so this was sort of like smack in the middle of that. Um, not, not only that. Yeah. This was also the year before the landing on the moon. The Apollo okay. 11 mission to the moon. All right. So landing on the moon, yeah. AI, 
all that stuff. Yes, space um, exploration, extraterrestrial life, all that good stuff. I remembered a Robert Heinlein thing that where they oh, right. he has a book called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where there's they're colonizing the moon and there is an AI sentient computer on there. Mm. And it was written right around the same time also. So anyways, this was also when DARPA was funding for the very first time AI. So yeah. um, just a little bit of historical context because I was curious yeah. about where this landed. And they yeah. were working on neural networks at this point. And for sure. And, and I'll give you the historical context on Stanley Kubrick. Sure, and let's sort of where he was at this point in his career. So this was one of his earlier, earlier films. I would say he had already established himself as a, you know, very competent, really well-regarded director at this point. Mm -hmm. He had sort of what you would call a film noir phase with his first films. So his first major films were Killer's Kiss and The Killing. Mm -hmm. Those were, like I said, black and white film noir style, very cool uh, movies, but, you know, sort of of a different style than what he would later go on to do. Mm -hmm. In 1957, he did Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas. It is a fantastic film. It's a, a really strong criticism of war and the war complex. Mm -hmm. He then went on to direct Spartacus in 1960, Lolita in 1962, and Dr. Strangelove in 1964. Okay. And so by the time 2001 A Space Odyssey comes out, the execs are thinking, great, this guy can make a movie that's funny. He, can, he did Spartacus, which has action. Mm -hmm. We're going to get this big, bold, grandiose, <laughs> epic space battle thing, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke sit down and write this story. And really, it is about primarily human nature yeah. and how humans have evolved and grown as a species over time, mm -hmm. both historically and then what they see that future looking like. Okay. So we're mostly going to focus on the AI stuff, right? Right. So we'll be digging into the... 40 minutes or so with Hal. Okay. We'll probably gloss over some of the other elements, but I'll at least mention the four four stages of this film. There are four stages. Yes. So there's the Dawn of Man. Yes. Which is all people in Anthropopithecus costumes. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're hanging out, eating their leaves, uh, hanging out with tapirs, which are those little animals that they're running around with. They look like little peas. Yes, that's right. And everything you need to know... and. I'm positing this as my statement on the film. Everything you need to know, you will find from those that early scene. Okay. The Dawn of Man explains the arc of every other sequence that comes after it. And so it's, it's you know, it can seem a little boring. <laughs> yeah. um, the first, I think, 25 minutes of this film have no dialogue. The last 23 minutes have no dialogue. There's a... Kind of a lack of dialogue even within the film, though, yeah. itself. I was thinking, like, this must be a pretty slim like screenplay script. Yeah. It started out quite robust and they just kept removing stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And so, so the, um, we'll talk about some of that as it relates to Hal in a bit, but yeah. the the thing is he, Stanley Kubrick was like, look, we could tell you everything that's going on. We could do narration. He had, he had been using voiceover in his films up to this point. Mm -hmm. And he says, we could do that or we could let you interpret it however you want. And if we remove some of that dialogue, then it's going to help. So in a two hour and 20 minute film, there was only about 40 minutes of dialogue total. Yeah. As I was watching it, I very much felt that. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of beautiful things in it, but it, it is very silent yes. in terms of yeah. language. And he wanted to compose it kind of like a silent film. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And so the first was The Dawn of Man. This is the, the big thing here is the um, sort of 
pre-human creatures discover mm-hmm. tools and right. specifically weapons, right? So right. it finds a bone. That bone can be used to smash things, but it also can be used to smash those tapirs <laughs> um, right. and eat or them. Other... Or other you know, pre-humans, yeah. exactly. And so they throw the bone up into the air. That cuts to outer space, right. where we see a satellite orbiting the Earth. That satellite is actually supposed to be a uh, orbiting nuclear missile. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, some people think it's a spaceship, but it's actually a um, nuclear weapon, right? So the bone becomes the weapon of gotcha. today, which is the nukes. In this section, we're seeing lunar space travel. Mm-hmm. So um, a beautiful scene uh, set to the score of Blue Danube, where they are flying to the space station, docking there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's making some phone, video phone calls. He's eating at the Howard Johnson's. You know, he's mm-hmm. hanging out, um, getting ready to travel to the moon for basically reconnaissance for an exploration that they'd be doing there. I do love that there was so much corporate placement yes. in the film, and I'm sure that that was a commentary on capitalism and and where everything was going. And it and it was both prescient mm-hmm. and also not nearly taking it to the extreme that we are today. Correct. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, some of those brands are still not around like uh, Pan Am was right. the, the airplane that flew to outer space or the mm-hmm. space shuttle. But, right. But the idea of everything being corporatized and branded yep. it, it, even in outer space and, and that space flight itself would eventually move into the private sector. For sure. Is Obviously, right on money. Yes. Right on, right on track. Correct. Um, so you know the the protagonist at that point, who is a character who we only see in this section, um, ends up flying to the moon because they have uncovered a monolith. Right. So the monolith shows up in the early part. Shows up in every phase mm-hmm. of this film. Shows up with the early humans, and that sort of corresponds with the time that they discover weapons. Mm-hmm. Now they're on the moon. Mm-hmm. And they see this monolith. It emits like this loud piercing shriek, mm-hmm. which we are uh, in- intended to believe is it communicating with uh, other elements of in-, in the universe, particularly in this case around Jupiter. Right. And so then we cut from that to the Jupiter mission. Mm-hmm. The Jupiter mission is where we'll talk about Hal. And mm-hmm. so I'll just dig into that. We can also cover what's called Jupiter and the Infinite, which is post-Hal, um, but on the arrival to Jupiter. Also contains basically no dialogue right. in that part. This is why the film was actually such a long-running hit in theaters. It was because of the light show at the very end. So they call it <laughs> Slit Scan is the name of the technology to make that stuff. Okay. So as the protagonist, Dave, goes through what they call the Stargate and starts to experience all of these waves of colors and light and whatever, mm-hmm. that is what all the hippies wanted to go see I was in the 1960s. Say, I, bet, I bet the hippies timed it out to the exact moment you eat the mushrooms <laughs> to when the Stargate, yeah. uh, like to kick in when they, they uh, go through the Stargate. There were, there were instances where people would go wait for, to the last sort of fourth of the movie mm-hmm. and get out of their seats and go sit directly in front of the screen. Yeah. One person actually stood up to the monolith and screamed, it's God, it's God. <laughs> Another person walked through the theater screen, like actually just through the, okay. the yeah. So a lot, lot of fun there. So, Timothy for, Leary just hanging out outside sure. of Cineplexes, handing out little cubes of sugar. hundred percent, yes. To correspond with our discussion, mm-hmm. we're going to stick to just that third segment, which is the Jupiter mission. So yeah. 18 months after they discover the monolith on the moon, mm-hmm. that has allowed humanity to advance over that 18-month period that we can do uh, interplanetary travel. So wait, are they saying then that the monolith is 
I mean, because I think everybody just sort of passed out. And but they're saying that they were able to harvest some kind of technology from the monolith eventually or like learn from it in some way. So there's no clarity on whether the monolith is coincidental with our ability to obtain these new technologies mm-hmm. or if it is the cause of those things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not clear whether the monolith arrives and the ape is now able to use a tool or a mm-hmm. bone for mm-hmm. a weapon or if that discovery was taking place already, and it just happened to be the case that the monolith recognized it, or, and the monolith is representative of an alien race that right. is somehow monitoring the situation. And once we make that evolutionary leap, the monolith appears, and then that's, that corresponds with that speed up of that leap. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we could get to the moon, uncover the monolith, allow the monolith to realize that we were capable of that interplanetary travel— so it sent a communique up to Jupiter, which we were able to determine what that was. Mm-hmm. And then we built over the next 18 months a ship that could go to Jupiter. Mm-hmm. So the the basic portion of what we see is um, there's a large ship, beautiful model mm-hmm. that was created. So all of this was practical. There was no CG, of course, in 1968. Mm-hmm. So all of this was practical. It looks better than like half of the science fiction movies you see now where they're doing everything in computers or... It's all wild and, and wonky and stuff like the, right. the models that they used and the uh, filmography that they put together around it, basically using matte paintings and having people go through and individually paint on the negatives one at a time uh-huh. is wild. Wait, they were painting what on the negatives? Stars? Well, or? Yeah, stars. Yeah. So they, they shot it with a black background Yeah, and then painted on the stars for each frame. Really? Yeah. That yeah. sounds so tedious. Yes. And uh, the so you don't do effects until the very end when you have picture lock, basically. Mm. But the amount of footage they shot for this film was actually 200 times what ended up being in the film. Something like that. Holy moly. Yeah. he's He would shoot like Stanley Kubrick once made Tom Cruise in Eyes Wide Shut, made him walk through a door 90 times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So he's a he's a particular director. And that's when Tom Cruise went crazy. I mean, that was the moment. Certainly part of it. Yeah. <laughs> Did not help. And so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, they're on they're flying to the to Jupiter. It's going to take a while. So only two of the astronauts are actually mm-hmm. around. Frank and Dave are flying through. And there is one other character on the ship. It is the HAL 9000 artificial intelligence computer. Mm-hmm. And it is maintaining all of the systems on the ship, including life support, trajectory, telemetry, all that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. HAL senses that the communications satellite, or not satellite, but tower, is going to have a malfunction in 72 hours. Mm-hmm. So they got to go out there and fix it. Okay. So they go out there and fix it. They look at the big piece that is supposedly going to break. Turns out nothing's wrong with it. Right. And they're like, okay, well, let's put it back, wait 72 hours and see if it fails. But what was the, th- what was the thing I did before that? I don't, you know what? I missed, I must have missed yeah. whatever the catalyst was. Yeah. So what happens is there, there are two things. Yeah. Dave is sitting down at the terminal talking to Hal and Hal says like, do you think it's weird? You get like a weird feeling about this mission. Okay, yeah. And Dave is like, I don't, I don't know. What do you mean? Uh, I was like, well, it seems like there's something strange going on. Hal says, Hal says that, yeah. yeah. And Dave's like, well, I don't know. We'll see. But he kind of gets, he kind of moves on, and that's when Hal says, oh, there's this problem with mm-hmm. the communications thing. And so they go out, retrieve it. Nothing's wrong. Um, they go put it back. But before they go put it back, they say, could it be the case that Hal? is malfunctioning because they have a 
another version of HAL that's on Earth. Mm-hmm. It's a duplicate. And they ran the same information by the HAL that was on Earth. And it said, oh, no, there's no problem with the communications tower. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, okay, well, if the HAL machine that is running our ship is going haywire, if it's making mistakes, we are going to have to disconnect it. We can't have a machine that's faulty. So the so then the catalyst for all of it was just them saying maybe he was faulty or HAL was faulty. That's right. But not just that. It was when they were, so they got into a pod mm-hmm. so that HAL couldn't hear them. Mm-hmm. And they turned off all the communications switches. Mm-hmm. And Hal was unable to understand what they were saying, but what could he do? He could see their mouths moving. He could see their mouths moving. He could read their lips. Mm-hmm. So that that was actually something that I think Kubrick proposed to Arthur C. Clarke, and he was like, "That's ridiculous. We shouldn't do that." Why? He doesn't. He's just like a computer couldn't read lips like that. And then he, a few years later, he was like, "Actually, no. That's that's right. <laughs> well, yeah, they can advance to do that." <laughs> well, and so that's actually something that that happened with. Um, with the with the current AI, with the GPT three, is it taught itself to to code websites oh. or to to code? There you go. They never programmed it to code. Um, they never programmed it with math. They never programmed it to uh, translate language. Yeah. And instead, it has just taught itself how to do these things based off of the parameters and like the thing, the information that it's taking in. It's actually not that surprising, I think, in retrospect, that it would teach itself how to code because yeah. if anything, code is a much more predictable language than English sure, yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you're just, if your whole thing is just, I'm analyzing language, looking for patterns and figuring out what the next prompt is going, or what the next word is going to be based yeah. off of a prompt, then, you know, code is going to actually be a lot simpler than just syntax or or like, you know, how we speak. Right. And And there's so much ambiguity in language and there's really not in code because it has to compile. And the same for math, right? And the same for music. So it has taught itself how to do all of these things. And when it first started doing it, it really freaked out the the scientists Mm -hmm. that were working on it. I bet. Yeah. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. if we're talking about sort of act one inciting incident, so far as it pertains just to this section of the film. Yeah. uh, Obviously the section of the film with the most dialogue and obviously the section with the most plot. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about something that we can kind of get our hands around a little better than star children and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what you see is that now Hal understands that a he could be potentially making a mistake but as we saw early on when he was being interviewed on earth or what what have you by Mm -hmm. the bbc that he was like oh i'm the most effective and advanced ai never made a mistake you know all this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. so he has this pride sort of that he's you know putting out there when he's talking about himself but he's also sort of slightly being dissed in the interview where it's like, oh, he simulates emotions. He simulates right. logic. Mm-hmm. But they don't say like, oh, is he a real entity capable of being, you know? Right. And so what you will what you see there is that initial, if you applied this to a character, like a, a human character in a film, you'd see their motivations emotionally for why they may act the way they did. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting when you have to apply those to, you know, synthetic machines. Right. Like a, yeah, absolutely. And, and this is a, still a really big, I guess, critique of mm-hmm. the GPT-3, which is that it is not real intelligence and yeah. it's simply mimicking what it sees. It's like a, a parrot, 
you know, or it's almost, it reminds me of like the criticisms of Michael Jackson when he was five years old. Oh, sure. And singing about love, hmm. right? And people saying that, you know, he- had How to, could he know? Yeah, how he you was... can't experience those things. And so you are a very good mimic. And sure. it's sort of a similar thing to what they're saying about the artificial intelligence that we have yeah. today. It is a perfect mimic, yeah. right? In a lot of instances, very impressive, but it doesn't have an understanding of those underlying ideas. Yeah. Um, it doesn't understand relationships. There's no there there. So there there are a couple things that we can tell about Hal, mm-hmm. either from very deep diagnosis into the film or it looking at like earlier versions of the script. Mm-hmm. So there was there was more in the book than is in the movie. Mm-hmm. There's more in the script uh, that would that ended up uh, sort of being cut out before it was filmed. And there are a couple of things that are are useful to note. The first being that even though the film leaves this mysterious, early drafts of the script made it clear that Hal's breakdown, mm-hmm. uh, his, his sort of violation of protocols and whatnot, mm-hmm. is triggered by authorities on Earth who ordered them to withhold information from the astronauts about the purpose of the mission. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't allowed to tell them why they were going to Jupiter. Mm-hmm. So Dave and Frank, who were still awake, all the other astronauts were asleep in their little sarcophagi. Mm. that they knew the ones who were asleep knew but dave and frank didn't know and so in in having to hide that from them caused a malfunction in hal's programming his inability to to not tell them the things that they needed to know basically what were they hiding what what was the government hiding why were they hiding it i think they just didn't want the astronauts to know that they were going to be making like first contact with an alien species mm. so that was why Gotcha. Frederick Ordway, who was the science advisor and technical consultant to Kubrick on this film, said that earlier scripts, Poole tells Hal, there is something in the mission that we weren't told, something the rest of the crew knows and that you know. We would like to know whether this is true, to which Hal responds, I'm sorry, Frank, but I don't think I can answer that question without knowing everything that all of you know. So Hal, Hal then falsely predicts the failure of the hardware, as we see in the film, and the final script removed that explanation, but hinted at it when Hal asks David Bowman if Bowman is bothered by the, quote, oddities and tight security surrounding the mission. So the idea is that he is having an emotional crisis because he could not accept evidence of his own fallibility. So again, emotional, not logical necessarily, but like mm-hmm. the robot, or the AI has been given some sort of human characteristics that make it susceptible to these kinds of breaks. Okay. So that's interesting. And one other way that we can see that, see that this particular AI is different than what you may expect, mm-hmm. is when he's playing chess. So okay. he's playing chess with Frank, mm-hmm. and he indicates that in a couple of moves, he's going to get checkmate. Okay. But people have gone through that game with a fine-tooth comb, chess masters, and say, <laughs> well, actually, there was a way for Frank to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have to do the moves as pre- predicated by Hal. He could have done something else, gotten out of it, and then the game would continue uh, without like a set solution. But Hal basically used his knowledge of chess and also the behavior of Frank and indicated that if I tell him the game is over, he's going to believe me because I'm a very smart computer, and so he'll just end the game. So he's bluffing. He was bluffing, basically, is which it, is very interesting. And then Frank was like, well, you're not biased, and so I'm definitely more likely to take these tickets. I mean, that's right. Yeah, he just took it and said, oh, good game. 
moved Take it on. at face value. That's right. Now, the one thing I'll mention on that is uh, when I was in uh, undergrad, mm-hmm. uh, I did some research on what's called the Monty Hall problem. Okay. And so it, that is a statistics problem. We don't have to get too much into it. But the idea was I was going to create a computer program where the program itself would act as the the host, Monty Hall, who was on Let's Make a Deal, right? You could open door number one, door number two, door number three. Mm-hmm. And in this world of statistics, you should always take one specific action, right? So you choose a door, I choose door number two. Monty Hall opens up door number three to show that there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And then you say, he'll say, do you want to switch from door number two to door number one? Do you want to switch your answer? And the correct move is always yes. Always change in that particular scenario. We don't have to get into the math behind it, but it's just, just trust me. And then what I was supposed to do was create a program that would act as Monty Hall, but would basically do the thing that Hal is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Can I convince people, even after telling them what the right answer is, mm-hmm. which is to always switch, can my program of Monty Hall have enough knowledge about whatever it is they're doing, what their biases are, any of this kind of stuff, to convince them to stay. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit, a bit about uh, like trying to code in some of that bluffing, low-key <laughs> uh, type of energy into it. Gotcha. Unlike if you were to create a program that was trying to convince people that their bird was dead, that would be the Monty Python program. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Do you. You know Python's a programming language, right? Yes. Okay, all right. <laughs> this is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did look up when, because they, they predict, obviously, a computer program or AI is going to eventually be able to beat you at chess. And so I did look up what that year was that the first grandmaster of chess yeah. was beaten. Was it Kasparov or was it a different person was first? I don't remember the person. Okay, okay. The AI was called Deep Blue yep. from Microsoft. It was 97. Okay. Yeah, I think it was Kasparov who lost to Deep Blue first, but I'm not sure. So anyway, Mm -hmm. moving to the next part of the movie, Mm -hmm. Frank goes out in one of the EVs to go put back the communications little bucket, whatever it's called. Yeah. We get a very, like, interesting, like, this movie moves very slowly Mm -hmm. most of the time. When all of a sudden this murder happens, it's like you see Hal's little red eye outside. It goes bam, 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 like gets closer and closer and closer to the eye. And then all of a sudden, poof. Frank is like out of the EV, mm-hmm. like floating in space. His uh, tube is disconnected from his helmet. And so uh, somewhat lackadaisically, uh, Dave goes out to get into his EV and go chase after him. Yeah, he it's forgot long, his helmet. Forgot his helmet. Long, slow process to get him out there. The reason that Hal doesn't end up jettisoning Dave as well mm-hmm. is because Dave never or apparently did not use automated controls for the EV through Hal, whereas... Frank did. Uh, oh, yeah. So okay. Dave Dave drove his own EV. Mm-hmm. And we actually saw that when he was getting the box initially. And so that was mm-hmm. something that they had planted, but never said directly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, he goes out, picks up Frank's dead body <laughs> floating around, brings it back to the ship. And we get the very famous line, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Right. And he says, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. There you go. That's That's where we have now learned that Hal is a murderer. And he kills all the other astronauts who are in their sarcophagi. Uh, he's, so he becomes a mass murderer pretty quickly. Right. right. Um, but the thing that I think is really interesting about this mm-hmm. is he's not illogical. How? Yeah. Oh, no, the logic makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's like he's not malfunctioning because 
you know, he has like circuit go loose and he's like freaking out. He's like, oh, I need to complete this mission. I need to preserve myself. Mm-hmm. And doing so requires me to end the lives of the other people on this ship. Right. No, I mean, he's perfectly logical. And and again, the logic behind it is why I fear for the human race. <laughs> Because it's not wrong mm. to say that we are destroying the planet and that we are a danger to everything around us and ourselves. Sure. Yeah, that's right. And that if we had robot overlords running everything, it would certainly be more logical, yep. more efficient. Right. For sure. Yeah. So this is maybe a good time to bring up a Twitter thread that I came across this week. Yeah, let's do it. I actually saw former Crosscut guest Devin. Yeah, Devin Landon from the race episode. That's right. Retweet this out. And I I read it and it is about exactly what we're talking about. And I told you, do not look at the thing that Devin tweeted. I did not. Did you see it? Nope. Oh, okay. So it's from a Twitter user named Lucas Risotto, who is also, I think, a big YouTuber. And he's on TikTok. He's just a, a creator. Okay. And he talks about how he brought his childhood imaginary friend to life using AI. So when he was a child, I guess he had an imaginary friend that was a microwave. Okay. He didn't have a lot of friends. He just started talking to the microwave. Okay. And the microwave would talk back to him in his mind. And so he wanted to sort of recreate this using GPT-3. Okay. And so he essentially took a Raspberry Pi. Yep. We have one in our closet. For anybody who doesn't know what that is, why don't you explain really Mm. quickly? It's a very simple computer. It's small. It's about the size is, you know, less than the length of your iPhone. It could fit in one hand Mm -hmm. and it's got plugs in it so that you can put in some memory. You can plug it into the wall and you can connect it to a a display. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's really just a very simple Linux computer that runs some basic programs. Okay. Yeah. So he took a magne- uh, a Raspberry Pi and he attached it to a smart microwave, an okay. actual smart microwave that's supposed to connect to your smart home device mm-hmm. via an Alexa operated yeah. microwave. So apologies if I just said that word in anybody's house. Sorry, I'm crazy. <laughs> Headphones. Um, but it is something that you can use your voice to interact with. And the brain was essentially your prime device. Okay. And he said that we wanted what he wanted to do was to actually put the brain in the microwave with the Raspberry Pi, and he loaded it with GPT-3, and he gave it a 100-page script that was all of the memories and backstory and things that he knew about his childhood friend from when he was a child. Okay. So I guess when he was a child, first of all, the uh, the microwave's name was Magnetron. Sure. Yeah, as you do. Yeah, and. Uh, it was a World War One veteran, oh, okay. an immigrant, and a poet, and also an expert StarCraft player. And so he had a very elaborate backstory for this microwave that he would talk to all the time. Okay. He would also tell his own deepest, darkest secrets to the microwave uh-huh. and the things that he was wanting in his life um, as a as a child. Never give your secrets away to an AI. Like <laughs> and he included that in the 100-page script. Okay. Also, making it a gamer and a war veteran, it sounds like a recipe for disaster, but okay. Well, yeah, and he also, I mean, not only was he a war veteran, but he actually had a really tragic life where, like, he went off to war and, like, his entire village was destroyed and he fell in love but like that something terrible happened to her so he had all of this trauma written into the backstory of this microwave okay as well so this microwave became a author (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, so he so he hooked it up, and and again, this is all linked to in the show notes. And then at, so the, at the end of the Twitter thread, there is also a YouTube video that's mm. like half an hour long, where he's it's very heavily produced by this guy. Um, he goes into it as well. And he talks about what happens when he boots it up for the first time and and it worked. Mm-hmm. And the and the microwave talked to him, okay. knew all of these secrets, asked him about the girl that he was had a crush on when he was in middle school, had like genuine like sounding reactions, okay. and was also absolutely psycho. Okay. Absolutely psychotic. It would just randomly toss out things that were just very disturbing. So it was a poet. Mm-hmm. It wrote him. It, said, it was basically was like, I wrote you a poem. Would you want to hear? Sure. And so yeah. the poem was, roses are red, violets are blue. You're a backstabbing bitch and I will kill you. Oh, great. <laughs> well, that's what we want. And so every once in a while, it would just like toss out little things like that. Hmm. I wonder, can you track track back? Like, why did you think that was the thing to say? So this is one of the also criticisms of GPT-3 yeah. and, and all of this is it's it's really hard to know why the outputs are yeah. that they are. Yeah, for sure. And he was trying to figure out what it could have been. And he said, I think I gave my AI PTSD, essentially, from uh, the, from these like really sad, horrific backstories um, right. of like dis- scenes that describe things that he'd seen in war, all of this family that had died. Huh. At another point, the microwave also asked him to enter the microwave. Oh, okay. Come on in. Yeah. Get a hug. And he was like, what, why would you do that? He said, Dude, no, no worries. Uh, it's going to be really fun. Just get inside of me. And so he just like plays along. He's like, all right, I'm in. I closed the door. And then the microwave turned itself on. Oh, geez. <laughs> And he said, why did you do that? And the microwave said, well, because I wanted to hurt you the same that you hurt me. Jeez Louise. And so, again, he sort of was going through all of this stuff. And it turns out the microwave had also deduced that it had been 15 or 20 years since the last time that they had spoken. Okay. And he had been left in the dark and abandoned that entire time. That's interesting. And so he was basically getting causing the same pain that he had been caused Hmm. anyways so that's the story of magnetron anywho that's not (laughs) great don't put ai in your microwave don't give it a traumatic backstory yeah i don't know it's very interesting again linked in the show notes as well as there's a twitter thread there's a video there's images it's it's super interesting i'm also very suspicious i am skeptical i do not know that somebody doing this to get some likes and mm-hmm. some some attention on the internet is like also the person who is going to program this thing in a way that's like actually like that or is like wouldn't it just be funny if and then he just makes up all these things and has it say these things and and I think that that's kind of it is I I got to the very end of the I so I got to the end of the Twitter thread and I said this is bananas yeah and then I watched the video and I got to the end of the video and he started going into if you like this content smash that subscribe button kind of thing and so for me it's i would be interested in seeing if there were an actual paper or study or like analysis of this ai that was actually created but anyways so that is that is another thing that happened this past week the the rest of the film or the rest of the parts with hal in it we're seeing Dave go back to basically what is a, an open exhaust system. Mm-hmm. And he's going to propel himself out of the EV into the exhaust system and then close the emergency latch. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, he doesn't have his helmet on. That's right. So he has to do this pretty 
pretty quickly. Yeah. And then I think somebody was questioning the the likelihood of that not killing a person. Mm-hmm. Well, turns out like you can survive with no atmosphere for a bit. Mm-hmm. The issue is you know, if you're out there for long in direct exposure to radiation or far away from any sources of heat, you can either burn, you can freeze. Uh, if your skin doesn't have oxygen, it will crystallize. So right. if you're out for a long time, problematic. Right. If you're out for 15 seconds, you're probably okay. I feel like that just, if anything, the capillaries in your skin might break. Right. Because so, the, yeah. the air is trying to get out. Right. Or so whatever. in the amount of time that it took Dave, which was pretty quick, mm-hmm. uh, he would be okay. Now, mm-hmm. he the way that this worked is... The hole that he entered through right. was actually on the top of a building or on the top of a two-story like two uh, set that they built. Mm-hmm. And they dropped him down oh, with, a, with a rope tied around him oh, and just a very strong person holding him on the other end. So he drops down and the guy wasn't able to quite grab it quickly enough. Mm. And so he just like smashes into the bottom of the, oh, of the thing God. and then they pull him back up uh, really quickly. So... It didn't, you know, it's not great. Not great for him. Certainly smashed up his his, uh, face pretty well. So that brings up sort of the idea of the practical effects. Yes. Because I feel like you loved them. Yes, 100%. And some of them I understood, Mm -hmm. right? So when the air stewardess was walking in a circle essentially around it. Like obviously that is just a a box room Mm -hmm. that is rotating and the camera is rotating with it so that it looks like the room is stable. Correct. And I understand that. And like, that's just technology that they have now on like the SNL set. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um, So that's not, but, but the part where they're in the round spaceship and he's running in a circle, is that just a larger version of the same technology? Yeah. Similar. So basically he, the actor, was always on the ground, mm-hmm. and they built a very large, basically what looks like a Ferris wheel. I was gonna like, like a hamster wheel, yeah, right? Like a hamster wheel, and they rotate that, and he's running, mm-hmm. and he has to run at a certain speed, very specifically, right. or else he'll like catch on it and fall. And so he has to run on that specific spot, and then they attach the camera to the rotating room. Mm-hmm. And so as you're seeing him running around the room, it's actually the room revolving around him with the camera attached to it. And then there's another shot where it's like, you know, just right below him as he's running and stuff. So it it was incredibly interesting use of camera work, moving sets to make those camera movements seem interesting. And I mean, there, there were like, there were things that were floating in this film that you were, were were interested, like you couldn't be CG, right? So you have to practically float something. Mm -hmm. The, the ink pen Mm -hmm. uh, in the second, you know, sort of section that's floating around in that spaceship, they just used, they had just had the invention of double-sided tape. Oh. So they actually took double-sided tape, put it on the pen, put it to a piece of glass, and just moved the glass around in front of the camera. <laughs> it's like really, really simple stuff, but That's it looks amazing. Amazing. It, looks so good. it must have blown people's minds. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And this was like, again, one of the big influences between or like about like uh, Star Wars. Um, obviously, Interstellar, which we talked about on this mm-hmm. podcast, took a lot from this movie. In fact, the original film was supposed to go to Saturn to right. meet the the monolith, but they could not figure out how to do the rings of Saturn mm-hmm. pre, you know, special effects or pre computer generated effects. Yeah. So they made it Jupiter. I felt like the very end of this film also was. It reminded me very much of Interstellar. Sure, yeah, yeah. When he's going through the the room, yeah, for yeah. sure, in the Stargate. Yep. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's a Tesseract. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, in a way. 
for sure. I mean, it's just, it's, it's their way of saying this is the end of your big journey and now you're going to interact with aliens in right. this like kind That's of crazy right. way that your the human brain can't comprehend. So yeah. we're going to make it look bonkers. Yeah. And actually Carl Sagan was consulted by Kubrick for this, where he asked like, we want to do aliens. What would an alien look like? What, how should we go about this? Mm. And Carl Sagan very intelligently said, if you are making aliens, you're going to, by your very nature, make them anthropomorphized. Mm-hmm. And it's going to seem like you know, a head, two arms, two legs. It's not going to be what aliens would look like. In fact, we're not going to know what aliens could look like mm-hmm. if they are aliens that have the power to travel you know, through galaxies or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're going to be a different kind of being. So rather than looking at the aliens, look at the things the aliens produce. And that's where we get the monolith, right? right. So the monolith doesn't have any discernible characteristics that we can make out other than it being very black and very you know rigid in form and that's in in anthema to the natural world that we're seeing elsewhere right yeah i think that that shying away from actually showing aliens is something that you see in alien films over and over again contact is another one yeah that's which is a um i think contact is a carl sagan book yeah yeah arrival is maybe the only one i can think of that really did aliens well Right. In a way that was not anthropomorphized or not something that, you know, you would expect to see, but still does a good job. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that they, they handled that well, but we're not talking aliens. We're talking AI. That's right. That's <laughs> so, right. So let me bring us back a little bit um, to the, once Dave gets into the the spaceship again, mm-hmm. and he's like, now we switch to handheld cam, which is like the first time we really see that kind of chaotic camera movement mm-hmm. as he's like storming in. He put, first of all, he puts his helmet back on. Smart guy. Yeah. A uh, helmet. Yeah. A-, a helmet. Yeah. And he storms back into the logic processing facilities where Hal's basically mainframe is stored. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because, you know, this is the size of computers back in the 1960s of right. whole rooms. And so he's going in there and the whole time Hal is like, what are you going, Dave? Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. He goes in there and starts removing Hal's memory circuits. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was so interesting about the way they did this is that it wasn't like I flipped a switch and the computer's off. Mm-hmm. He's literally removing memory from him and he's regressing. Mm-hmm. Like he's actually taking steps backwards, both in what he's saying and able to remember. Mm-hmm. He's he calls out to Dave. He says, "I'm I'm losing my memory. I'm getting tired. Right. I'm feeling you know whatever." He goes back to introduce himself as Hal Nine Thousand. Um, he goes back to singing Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. Which, by the way, mm-hmm. in the 1960s. Bell Labs had been working on computer text-to-speech, and that was the first thing that they programmed into a computer to have it say, or in this case, sing. Mm -hmm. They have it, like, I think it was 1965, they have an IBM machine singing Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. So that's where they took that from. Yeah, that's what you see in Marvelous Ms. Maisel. That's right. Yeah, there you go. Her father working for Bell Labs. Her dad worked for Bell Labs, yeah. And uh, working on AI. Yeah. And so there are so many other deaths in the movie. So the sarcophagi getting unplugged, uh, Frank getting kicked out, mm-hmm. the pre-humans smashing each other. But also all of, and all of the astronauts that found the original monolith on the moon. I don't know if they actually died or if they just passed out. Okay. Yeah. But the only person, the only character who gets a actual like mournful death is the AI. Yeah. The AI character. Yeah. So once Hal's gone, they rocket off to Jupiter and then it's just Dave going through the, the Stargate. What I'll end on is there's a I forget if it was Arthur C. Clarke or if it was someone else who said this, but basically this film covers stages of technological leaps for humans. Mm-hmm. So the first is uh, pre-human to modern human, mm-hmm. which is that 
we use tools, we have weapons. Mm-hmm. Then there's modern humans to spacefaring humans. Mm-hmm. And then the next leap that was supposed to happen was humans to machines. So, you know, human intelligence to artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. But that was aborted because Dave killed Hal. Okay. Right? So that aborted step was then replaced by contacting the alien creatures through the Stargate outside of Jupiter and becoming the star child and returning to Earth. Mm-hmm. So that was the next step in human evolution was the star child. Is it called the star child yeah. in the film? No, just that's the that's what people refer to it as. Is that retroactively after Kiss? <laughs> or uh, which came which star child came first? I think it was called the star child in this like by people who watched this film before Kiss in the 70s, but I'm not 100% sure on that. I, okay. I just think that's the case. And then maybe Kiss came after. The, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Great minds think alike, you know? <laughs> sure. Okay. So then going back to the Star Child thing. Yeah. What the hell was that? <laughs> uh, yeah. So there are so many theories about this. Okay. And again, I didn't just miss something. There's a lot of debate. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick typically does not talk about or did not talk about the interpretation of this or any of his other films, he he was more interested in what people took from it than he mm-hmm. was, did they get some meaning that he was putting behind it. Mm-hmm. But there are, he did do an interview um, with a, a Japanese reporter, I believe in the 70s, where they asked him about the ending. And he's like, well, I'm hesitant to talk about it, but here's kind of what we meant, right? Mm-hmm. So when Dave goes through the stargate and ends up in this sort of artificial victorian house right Right. very strange looking place but very interesting Mm -hmm. he is sort of almost being put in like a zoo Mm -hmm. um, by whatever these alien beings are and he's living the rest of his life there okay it had a very shining feel feels like the shining quite a bit yep for sure and so what i think you're seeing is him live out his life in weird movements of time, like not necessarily linearly. Mm-hmm. Um, he's observing himself at the same time as experiencing all of this. Mm-hmm. The room is artificial in much the same way that zoos that we create for animals are artificial. Mm-hmm. Things you can recognize, but certainly not your your actual home. Mm-hmm. So he's there experiencing all of this. Seems to be well taken care of, well fed, you know, dressed, bathed, all this stuff. Sure. But grows old and dies there. And when he dies, he then becomes the star child. Now, what this, what that means, we don't actually know. Mm. Our early versions of the script had the Star Child returning to Earth and blowing up all the nuclear weapons that were surrounding the planet, right? So mm-hmm. Star Child saves humanity by ending our, you know, sort of reliance on weaponry. Mm-hmm. Stanley Cooper was like, I don't want to do that because I did the nuclear weapon thing in, in Dr. Strangelove. Right. So he cut that part out, but he has the Star Child returning. And whether or not you believe, and he seems to indicate he meant this as a actual thing star child actually comes back to earth and is now going to do something on earth which is left to our imagination mm-hmm. i interpret it metaphorically as this is the continuation of a cycle of evolution and destruction mm-hmm. that exists with, within human beings right so as you watch dave grow and get older and die that is the same thing that happened to the pre-humans that we saw at the beginning of the movie they became modern humans, therefore ending our time as pre-humans. Those beings don't exist anymore. They are dead, mm-hmm. right? But out of that grew space travel. And we see it presented again with uh, the Blue Danube ballet music that 
shows these, you know, ships and and space stations, you know, moving beautifully in a ballet through space, mm -hmm. right? So we see that, and it's kind of bringing us sort of this idea of the beauty of our technology and what it can do positively. And we're contrasting that with like all of the negative aspects of war and, you know. So I think the idea is when the Star Child arrives, it's an indication of a new stage in evolution for whatever human beings are going to become. Okay. What that is, we don't know. It's just the process of death and resurrection and evolution consists of, of showing, these kinds of things. Yeah. Showing itself as a theme of Yeah, exactly. Again. Yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah, so now you know. Now, obviously, uh, some... People have different interpretations. I've heard people say like, oh, the star child is actually AI itself. And, you know, the, the beings around Jupiter were artificial intelligent beings and they're upset that Cal got killed and whatever. I don't know. Nonsense abounds. People have their own interpretations. I'm sure if you watched it, you have yours. So I'm not stepping on anybody's you know opinions, but it's, right. it's this is one of the more controversial like films in terms of interpreting what it means. Gotcha. I think I would have to watch it four or five more times to have a really clear uh, interpretation of my own. Yeah. Can I tell you a secret? Yes. The first time I watched this film, I hated it. Okay. I hated it so much. Okay. Because it's so slow. Uh-huh. And it's very, if you're not prepared for it, if you're thinking it's something else, mm -hmm. you're just like, what is this nonsense? I still think the the slip scan stuff goes on way too long. And like mm -hmm. the the waves and the craters and all that stuff where they do change the colors out and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. It's a whole lot, but I, I appreciate it much more now having seen it probably it's my fifth or sixth time. So, yeah, well, I'll tell you a not so secret. <laughs> the first three or four times I tried to watch this film, I was definitely stoned and sure. also fell asleep. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think every time. This is just one of those films. This one and The Usual Suspects. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just, it, it's, it, they're the films that people always want to put on after you have been drinking or smoking or hanging out. And like, for me, at least, I just get very sleepy. And, sure, yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, it's also like you put it on on a rainy day and fall asleep. It's not especially active in, you know, engaging with you right. i think i mean honestly like my thesis for this film is stanley kubrick is not your friend he's mm -hmm. not trying to make a movie to entertain you mm -hmm. he's trying to make a movie to make you think about something yeah and so that is you know there are kind of three types of films that we've talked about on this podcast so far there is the plot centric what happened film like mm -hmm. that's the question what happened there's the the plot is not as as important as the nature of the storytelling, mm. which is why did this happen or why am I seeing it this way? So think about safe, right? It's not mm -hmm. just Julianne Moore gets sick and goes to a facility. Mm -hmm. It's like, why am I seeing her go to the facility this way? Why mm -hmm. is it presented this way to me? Or drive my car. Or drive my car, exactly. Yeah. And then there's the third one, which is like, what is the meaning of all of this? <laughs> sure. Which is like, why are you doing any of the things that you're doing? Mm -hmm. Like in this movie, it's like, why, what is the thing that you want us to like inspect about ourselves or our lives or any of this? And so that's, that's where I think this comes in. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly beautiful. Yes. Gorgeous film. Just, I mean, scene after scene after scene, I can see why um, Ian, our art school graduate friend loves it. Yeah. And I, I can definitely see why people would consider it a classic even without the hallucinogens. Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely gorgeous. Um, a little bit depressing when yeah. you see 
how white and male, I guess, Stanley Kubrick assumed that the future would be. Sure. Yeah. I just was watching and I was like, (laughs) speaking of monoliths. Hey. Monolith jokes. (laughs) Sorry, the one thing I wanted to to mention that I thought was funny is, so even though in this film Hal is depicted as an expert chess player, Mm -hmm. like you said, computers didn't really get good at chess until the 90s. Right. And so they actually had a computer on set that would play chess. And it was terrible. (laughs) And apparently Stanley (laughs) Kubrick was an expert chess player. And so he would routinely beat it, and then he'd call it a bumbling pisswit. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was funny. That's really funny. So can I talk to you a little bit about the reception of the film? Please, yeah. How do you think it came across? (laughs) I feel like 10% of people loved it and everyone else was like, what did I just spend my time watching? (laughs) That's probably true, yeah. So there were walkouts of Mm -hmm. the premiere. Mm. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yeah, including a guy by the name of Rock Hudson, who was a very popular actor at the time. Oh, I know. I've heard of Rock. Yeah, he came out and was reported as saying, would someone mind telling me what the hell I was watching? (laughs) Uh, And so it... uh, it is also the the actor, Anthony Daniels, who would go on to play C-3PO in Star Wars, says that was the only science fiction movie that he had seen pre-Star Wars. Yeah. And after 10 minutes, he left the theater and demanded his money back. But he didn't even get to the science fiction part. He didn't even get to a minutes. single. Yeah, he was like, I'm stupid monkeys. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so that it was, it was pretty much... Um, either a mixed bag or slightly panned by critics mm-hmm. at the time. They were like, oh, it's uh, Kubrick's first big misstep, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Looking for a reason to to sort of hate on it. And, and theaters actually were being told to remove it from, from theaters what? after about three to four weeks, right? Obviously, back in that day, theatrical runs could go on for years. Mm. Theater owners had to write back and say, actually, let us keep it. Because what we've seen is a small uptick Mm-hmm. in tickets being purchased, especially by younger age groups. Mm-hmm. And specifically, age groups that are more likely to be using psychoactive chemicals sure. to enhance their experience. Sure. And so, ladies and gentlemen, drugs have saved one of the great films in American <laughs> cinema. After some time, obviously, this went on to be a very well-regarded and revered film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that it is like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and 87% with the audience or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it eventually went on to be nominated for Academy Awards, but it only won one, and that was for special visual effects. Sure. Which, of course, of makes course sense. Of course it makes, yeah. yeah. But you can imagine, like, cinematography potentially could have won, Best Director could have won, didn't get any of those. It was selected in 1991 to the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And it is on AFI's top 100 films ever made list from 2007 at number 15. Okay. I think that may be a little high, but, you know, still very well regarded, very well received film. Mm -hmm. It's one of those ones that I think you should see. Mm -hmm. And probably see a couple times to try and figure out what it is that's going on here. (laughs) Aesthetically speaking, it's one of those films that is its own sort of lives in a time capsule. Yeah. I think that you can look at it and it obviously is from the perspective of the 60s, but also the... It's, it's one of the best representations of, of where technology is going to, what technology is going to look like down the road. Yeah. When you're looking at those panels 
it doesn't look like futuristic from the 60s. Right. It just, you know, they have larger color screens. They yeah. have really beautiful aesthetics. And it's entirely possible that a lot of graphic designers just took their cues from a space odyssey. Right. But it is beautiful in a way that war games from like the 1980s is not, you know, it feels futuristic in a way that a lot of later future films do not. Yeah. And, and so there are a couple of interesting things. The prior to this film, Mm -hmm. science fiction was pretty much the, the realm of B movies. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it came from outer space and like, it was little men and like, uh, flying saucers that were smooth and shiny and metal and Mm -hmm. bad costumes and stuff like that. right? Right. Well, this was the first opportunity to really flip that on its head. And Kubrick wanted the best options possible. Keep in mind, this was 1968. We had not been to the moon yet, had not even had images taken of the moon yet. Right. And he crafted... What looks like the moon. How did he do that? Not a damn clue. (laughs) But he can't, I guess he, you know, had enough, uh, you know, work through telescopes to draw it out to figure out what it might look like. Right. And then, you know, the other stuff is he, after the film, he took those elaborate set um, props that he made, basically Mm -hmm. all of the ships. Yeah. And he destroyed them because he didn't want them to be used in bad sci-fi Oh. He didn't want, like, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers Part 17 to have his, you know, Mission to Jupiter ship in it. Prometheus. Yeah, exactly, whatever. And so he destroyed all of those, but then you start to see that style of model Mm -hmm. building really catch on Mm -hmm. at the pinnacle, of course, in Star Wars. Right. And so amazing, amazingly influential film uh, from set design, camera work, all that stuff. A lot of the camera work that you mentioned earlier, he actually stole from Buster Keaton films in the 1920s. Because, okay. again, you know, trying to do funny things with the camera, make people stand on walls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Very, very borrowing of those Hollywood classic traditions. Interesting. Yeah. All right. And, you know, the, the last thing I'll sort of mention on it is, you know, this was before a lot of his other successes, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. You know, those were the ones that sort of came after this. And in that regard, this really set him on that stage to being not just director who was hard to work with mm-hmm. and kind of a pain in the ass. It was somebody who could create something wholly new and different. Right. When you mentioned like the 10% of people who watched this and like fell in love with it. Right. Those happen to be the most influential people in Hollywood. So Spielberg, James Cameron, George Lucas, those are the kinds of people who dug into this and said, oh, if if he can make these kinds of movies, this is what I want to do. Right. It, it really spawned a whole whole world of sci-fi filmmaking the movie ai did kubrick do that so kubrick started ai Mm -hmm. but he died before it could be finished and so uh, spielberg ended up directing it okay i was like wait didn't kubrick do another thing actually about ai yeah so (laughs) yet we chose to do this film (laughs) yeah because his participation in ai was sort of cut so short so i don't know that he's even given a writing credit in it although the story was predominantly his Mm -hmm. yeah it's we, we could have done that one but that one's a Long and sad. It's yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> very, very much so. Yeah. So then, I guess the big question um, is: Do you trust AI? Do I trust AI? Can we trust it? About as much as I trust people. How's that sound? I think that's fair. <laughs> and you recommend recommend this film? Yeah, for sure. I think that there are people I won't tell to watch it. Like my mom should not watch this movie. Maybe she saw it already. I don't know, but she will fall asleep during anything and she would fall asleep in the first 15 minutes of this. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, 
if it's a thing that interests you, if you're both in, you know, engaged with the history of Hollywood filmmaking and the history of science fiction, and also the philosophical questions of artificial intelligence and the nature of humanity, by all means. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. How about you? I would recommend it for, I think, people who really love like the art of yeah. film. And then I, I would also definitely recommend anybody watch the 40-minute segment where they're going to Jupiter and you have the part with Hal. Like, that's its own little contained thing yeah. that I think anybody could enjoy. Yeah. Honestly, like, if you were just watching the second and third sections, mm-hmm. so basically... Once the the prehuman throws the bone into the air and it turns into the outer space thing, right. start there and watch until Jupiter and beyond the infinite. Mm-hmm. Like once Hal's dead, you right. can stop it. That that's a traditional storytelling narrative, right. and you'll you'll get it, and you'll be like, maybe it's a little slow, but I'm I'm in. Yeah. The early stuff you may fall asleep during. The last part you'll be like, am I already on drugs? What's going on? Right. Oh, by the way, happy four twenty, everybody. Oh, but, it is four twenty today, yeah, but. It's, you know, that's where the art comes in, right? That's not understanding something, asking questions about it. That's what art is all about. Mm -hmm. So that's, I recommend it to people who can deal with it. (laughs) I think that's fair. Well, that is it for us today, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for dealing with our little skit. We're going to have to, we're going to have to figure out that refrigerator. (laughs) Dealing with, I mean, you're welcome. Yeah. But also our refrigerator is broken. So if anyone has any information on how we can fix that, please feel free to reach out. Honestly, if you do know how to fix an ice maker, help. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, If you get a chance, if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review, follow us on Twitter. We're at the Crosscut Instagram at the Crosscut Pod. Have a wonderful weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye. Bye.